0: ladies and gentlemen this is ben and we're here with uh pastor sean cole uh pastor sean cole was my dialogue slash mini debate not really debate partner uh from a video we did a couple of weeks ago i believe it was two weeks ago now uh with miss suzanne morales um and we're pretty good Uh, how you doing pastor i'm doing very well how are you i'm doing all right it's good to have you back uh followed up with you afterwards and i wanted to uh, do a follow-up video because uh, during that dialogue it didn't didn't go really where I was hoping it would go, uh, unfortunately. Um, I think we just ran out of time. There was some, some long-winded answers, and unfortunately, we didn't really get to key texts like I was kind of hoping we would. Sure. Um, and I remember afterwards, we were messaging each other, and, and you had some comments about some things that were said, uh, especially by Mr. Warren. Um, and I just wanted to follow up, maybe start with a brief intro for... Uh, most of the people who comment on the video uh, were obviously provisionists because Miss Morales is a provisionist. Um, so maybe we could start with just maybe a brief uh, introduction to what Calvinism is or Reformed theology is for the uninitiated.
1: Well, first of all, we do not, as Calvinists, hold to a system of theology named after a person, John Calvin. We look at the text exegetically, grammatically, historically. And as we look at these texts, those truths emerge, and we believe what the Bible says. And so we don't try to impose a system on the Bible. We come to our conclusions from uh, the text of Scripture itself. And so I just want to say that a lot of people accuse us of following a man, John Calvin, or, or following a system. Um, I actually became a Calvinist before I even read any of, of John Calvin or his institutes. Um, I became a Calvinist by really diving into John chapter six and Ephesians chapter one. Um, But I I would, I would probably give the best definition. And that's probably from J.I. Packer in his introductory essay to John Owens, the death of death and the death of Christ. He gives a very succinct definition of reformed theology says God alone saves sinners uh, from first to last. And so when we talk about Calvinism from a uh, salvific aspect or from soteriological aspect. Basically, what we're saying is in eternity past, God set his electing love on a specific fixed number of people who did not deserve salvation, who were fallen in Adam, who were dead in trespasses. God set his electing love upon them in eternity past. He sent Jesus Christ to die specifically for those whom he elected. Jesus died specifically for them on the cross, obtaining their eternal redemption, and then at a point in time, the Holy Spirit comes to those specific individuals and does a work of regeneration, of effectual calling to bring those who were chosen to faith, granting them the faith to believe, overcoming their spiritual deadness, bringing them to life, and then what God started, he completes by ensuring that those whom were chosen, whom were called, whom Christ died for, will certainly persevere to the end, not lose their salvation and be eternally saved. And so you think about Romans 8:30. Those whom God predestined, he also just called. Those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Calvinism would say from first to last, in eternity past into eternity future, God alone saves sinners and does everything necessary, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, to bring a sinner to faith in Christ.
0: That's good, because the uh, the charge we usually get is, it's usually one of two things, is you follow a man from the 16th century, you know, you follow a man named Calvin, and we follow the Bible, or uh, I was listening to somebody earlier, and they call us Augustinians, you know, we're Augustinians, we started in the 4th century, this is when
2: right.
0: Calvinism started, supposedly, uh, and I see a lot of people wasting a lot of time attacking uh things that i don't hear calvin is saying because uh, we even in our you know our, our uh, dialogue we you know started with romans 6 and we talked about or romans 6 uh john 6 and ephesians 2 and john 10 and then it was a lot of well philosophical reasoning <laughs> it felt like right. uh, from right. the other side so it um there's a lot of straw man attacks and a lot of you know people saying we believe this and we don't believe that not not a whole lot of substance um until we're actually saying is that what you experience a lot from people yeah
1: well yeah i well if we're talking specifically about the the dialogue we had (laughs) um i felt like there wasn't a lot of delving into texts it was more this is kind of what my philosophy is um i think you and i we dealt with texts mm-hmm. as quick as quickly as we could we kind of went through them i mean we didn't have time to exegete them or to mm-hmm. to give a full exposition but at least we we addressed text and said this is where we're this is where we're getting our theology from the text yeah um so
0: yeah and that was and i, I noticed that also in the comments of following up um, people uh, attack things like that and so i made a, another video and went through john chapter 6 just by itself verse 22 through 70 you know we're in Went down verse by verse and showed people you know the the quotations and why i was referencing that in the first place and where you know the provisionist idea would split from the the reformed understanding of that but yeah it it seems in in our conversation but also from what i've noticed in general conversations is that it's more text and scripture from our side it seems and a lot of philosophical reasoning and analogies from uh most of the other sides um so how we get into how how did you get started i guess with the whole Calvinism debate, maybe online, because when we, I found out we were having this dialogue, um, I saw you doing a uh, interview with two other provisionists was the first video I came across from you. And you also have a podcast, sure. I believe, maybe just to give us a little, yeah. how you started into
2: that?
1: Yeah. I mean, let me kind of give you my journey. Um, I've grown up Southern Baptist. Uh, my dad's a pastor, been a Southern Baptist my entire life And back in high school and college. I was strongly, I, I wouldn't call myself Arminian, but was definitely a synergist, definitely um, was anti-Calvinistic, anti-reformed. And then in the early 2000s, when I was in seminary, um, actually, Dr. James White, who is uh, the head of Alpha and Omega Ministries, was my apologetics professor. And he was the first one that kind of introduced me to That's reform nice. theology. <laughs> he gave us a copy of his book, The Potter's Freedom. And it's funny, the first time I read that... I've got notes in the margin where I'm like, this guy's crazy. And the second time I read it, I'm like, oh, he's starting to make sense. And the third time I read it, I'm like, okay, I'm convinced. So that book was very instrumental. Also, just learning the original languages. Um, I remember being in my my office as a youth pastor at the time, going through John chapter 6 and just looking at it exegetically and asking the deep questions. And I, and I got so mad that I actually threw my Bible across the office and just got down on my knees and walked in. kind of in anger and in joy at the same time it's kind of hard to explain yeah but it's like why haven't I seen this before and then I said to myself I've become what I've hated most I've become a Calvinist how do I how do I psychologically deal with this and so I went home to my wife and I said to her I said honey I, I think I've become a Calvinist and she's like well don't worry about labels but this is one thing she said to me that always stuck with me she said She said, Sean, if the scripture teaches it, you have no choice but to submit to its authority. (laughs) And so at that point, I was like, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've been, I've been a Calvinist since like 2000. Um, But it was recently when the traditional statement came out in 2012, among Southern Baptists, it was it was kind of a push to launch this new movement. They used to be called traditionalists. Mm -hmm. Um, Eric Hankins was the one that Pinned that traditional statement, and there were a lot of issues. Even Dr. Al Mohler pushed back on it, even Armenians uh, pushed back on it and said, "Wow, you guys are even further." You know, some some Armenians like Roger Olson accused it of being semi-Pelagian. So it was kind of being attacked by both sides. And then um, I ran into Leighton Flowers after I heard his Romans nine debate with James White. And so back in 2015, Leighton and I first started interacting. And so um, I was like one of the first. Calvinist, Southern Baptist you know not not a big name like John Piper or John MacArthur that he usually deals with or RC Sproul but mm-hmm. um they they really started trying to attempt to understand provisionism and so um I've done some debates with Layton um Tyler Vella Chris Date and I have done some things with him um I've been on his podcast and then all of a sudden um I was tagged I think it was last year I was tagged in a, in a Facebook that um these Provisionist Perspective guys were, were interacting with me. And I'm like, I don't know how they found me. And so um, I waited a few months before I engaged with them. And then I went on their, their podcast. But I've been doing this since 2015, more with Leighton Flowers and Braxton Hunter than with um, the Provisionist Perspective guys. But they, they, they kind of picked on me as well. That's a long answer. <laughs> yeah. um, so my, my podcast is Understanding Christianity, uh, you can find that you know on on Apple Podcast or whatever. My website seancole dot net. So
0: that sounds yeah, it's very kind of a similar to me. I started you uh, see my I have James White, the God who justifies, yeah. and I have my yeah. uh, Nestle Allen twenty eight back there from when I took my two years of Greek in undergrad. So I'm uh, obviously fluent in Greek from from two years. <laughs> but I, I have a I think Greek probably Greek was one of the most um, useful and eye-opening things for me, especially because I kind of came to Reformed Theology or Calvinism organically, kind of like that, and I started studying Greek and started looking at different languages, and then, you know, if you look at John three sixteen 16 in Greek, and you go, oh, you know, it's not that everybody knows the King James, whomever he died for, and you start looking at participles and the way that Greek is connected and things like that, it, yeah, it started to kind of just stir me and make sense, and then I just gradually started listening to James White and John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, and just kind of was swooned that way because they're, the way Calvinists handle scripture and the way I see other uh, traditions or denominations or whatnot handling scripture, um, we take it much more literally uh, in context where I see a lot of philosophizing and things from from other camps. So I think that was how I also came to that idea. All right, so let's talk, uh, let's talk about Dr. Leighton Flowers uh, because okay. he gets... Uh, a lot of press <laughs> he makes he's, he's prolific uh, he is he's very he's <laughs> i gotta get to the man's active. he's he is That's all about it stuff. yeah <laughs> so he's he's on other people podcasts. he was uh i think uh, miss morales did a video with him right before she did it with us um and obviously mr warren who we spoke with has done things with him uh he has a i don't know if it's a fixation with reform theology or calvinism but when i look at his channel and i think Maybe his mindset, he, he kind of, all his videos seem to be about Calvinism, or provisionum, mostly. Um, right. Would that be a correct statement, you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, to his credit, Leighton is employed by the Baptist General Convention of Texas as their head of evangelism. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I know he does some things there, but when you look at, like, three or four YouTube clips a day, sometimes, um, where does he find the time to do this? And so... I um I'm I, I don't have proof of this. I think James White has made the comment that maybe, you know, he's he's kind of being pushed or or put out there by the powers that be that are trying to push the, the anti-Calvinistic movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for him it's become a passion. He I mean he supposedly he was a Calvinist for ten years,
2: yeah,
1: and he's come out of that, and so it's almost like he's an evangelist for provisionism, rapidly trying to convince people of his view. And I don't want to say it's a fixation, but it's, I would just use the word it's prolific. Um, and he has made a lot of inroads in people. Um, if you listen to him, his big point is when you type in things about soteriology on Google, some of the top sites that come up are Ligonier's or Desiring God or Gospel Coalition, you know, mm-hmm. very Calvinistic ministries. And he's like, you know, we need to combat that. And one of the things I asked him one time, I said, how come you guys as provisionists do not put out the scholarly work the way that the reform people do? Um, and he's like, that's a good question. So I, I think there, may, you may be seeing some – I think Adam Harwood at New Orleans is getting ready to put out a systematic theology that may be more provisionist in nature, which I'm interested in seeing that come out.
0: Well, continuing that, since when we spoke with Mr. Warren, it seems – Um, I'm going to ask you, do you feel that Leighton Flowers um, and that kind of people maybe in his camp ideologically, do they hold to the idea that's closer to open theism and they just use the term provisionism as a way to say it because, you know, open theism kind of has like a, a stigma attached to it. Do you think he does
1: or? I would say Leighton Flowers walks a fine line because he's an employee of a denomination that in the doctrinal statement has a provision there for open theism. I guess if you take the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, I'm not sure if he holds to the 63, which doesn't have that in there. Um, as a denominational employee, I think he has to walk a fine line. Now, I would I don't think Leighton himself is an open theist, but I would say if he were to hold open theism and what he would call divine determinism side by side, he would rather go with open theism that God doesn't know the future than to say that God ordains. Evil, because he says that it would impugn God's. It would be better. It would be the lesser of two evils to impugn God's character as not knowing the future than to say that He ordains all things that come to pass.
0: Okay, so it's just kind of a I guess, a way of safely staying away from having to to blame God in a, in a sense for yeah. evil so, actions.
1: So I would, I'd say latent is um his followers, like some of the guys on the provisionist perspective, like Eric Kemp.
2: I'm mm-hmm.
1: just learning about Warren McGrew. I think those guys have gone further to the bounds of Pelagianism, to open theism than, than Leighton would go. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Leighton has kept the guardrails on um, because of his position as a denominational employee. Those other guys, I think, would be okay saying, I'm an open theist. I'm One thing I, I found out about Warren, he made some comments that he was a conditional mortality guy, which sounded like he was an annihilationist. Mm-hmm number two, he sounded like he was a Pelagian in the sense that I don't believe in inherited sin. I, I I choose to sin. I think he said something like, you know, you're kind of, I asked the question ontologically, what happens to you going from death to life? I don't know if you remember that. And he said yeah. something like, well, you know, I don't think there's an ontological change. I think we're kind of on the path to death. And then we kind of choose to get on the path of life. And um, when I choose to sin, I'm 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 accountable for those sins. And so I'm like, wow, I don't want to label him a Pelagian, but that sounds pretty close to Pelagianism. And um, so I think provisionism lends itself towards Pelagianism and open theism, if you're not careful.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that, because I was going to comment on that. So I went back and rewatched that section where you asked him that, and with the things he said, and it was uh, fairly ironic, because before that, when I asked um, them a question and uh, Pastor David answered, I said, have you got you know, consider yourself Molinist? And, you know, do you have a connection with that? And he kind of took it up and Warden didn't answer. Well, then I went and watched some of Warren stuff. And he considers himself a Neo-Molinist uh, was his terminology. Uh, he holds to something called dynamic omniscience. Have you heard of that? Uh, yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah. So they, it seems from watching his videos, it's, he's a Molinist, but they call themselves New Molinist. And they have this idea that, well, God knows the future, but there's, a bunch of different futures. You know, there's that kind of that William Lane Craig counterfactual middle knowledge, you know, well God knows all the thing all the possibilities, but he doesn't know which possibility, but he knows all of them, so no matter which one happens, <laughs> he's still all knowing, all powerful. Um, is there have you run into people who have tried to scripturally uh, defend the idea of Molinism or the you know, these multiple ideas that God knows all these futures and that just one plays out eventually?
1: No, no. I mean there's two things. There <laughs> try to find a scripture verse for convenient grace, you cannot. <laughs> try to find a scripture verse for open theism, you cannot. Or even Molinism. Mm-hmm. Um, what I hear them say is God is sovereign, but he chooses to limit his sovereignty because he values human free will so much that he limits his sovereignty. I'm like, okay, show me a verse where God in any way limits Himself. Mm-hmm. Now, we as Reform Christians would look and say, okay, we see two things side by side in the scriptures. We see God's absolute, meticulous sovereignty over all things, and we see human responsibility. Now, how those two work out, we don't fully know. There is some compatibilism there, but we let the scripture speak to where it speaks, and beyond that, we're silent. Whereas I think they would say, Let's make a philosophical jump and try to figure out this thing by creating middle knowledge or, or creating these possibilities, even though there's no Scripture for it, as opposed to living with the tension that God is absolutely sovereign, humans are responsible. How that works out, we don't exactly know, but both are taught in the Scriptures, and we see both of them. And, and our confessions affirm that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hold to the Second London Baptist, but if you're a Westminster Confession, you know both of our confessions, whether Presbyterian or Baptist, Reformed confessions hold to that.
0: I wonder if I uh, get your take on this I wonder if some of that maybe the popularity of that kind of idea where there's um, we're almost it's almost like if the onus is being taken off God off of God comes from the push where um, like apologetics and the interact you know we have these popular apologetics you know William Lake Greg, and uh, Frank Turk you know and John Lennox, these people and there's kind of been right. this this large move where they go to secular campuses and they you know defend Christianity or defend God or you know whatever the topic may be you know God and science. And what I see from most of them, uh, like Dr. Frank Turk or William Craig, is that it almost seems as if they the middle knowledge seems, seems easier to defend because if you go into a college campus with a bunch of unregenerate, carnal nineteen mm-hmm. year olds and you're preaching, Yep, you're the sinner, you're fleshly, you're carnal, you're, you know, deserve hellfire. You know, that doesn't draw large crowds. So almost the idea of middle knowledge, well, you know, you're evil and God, he's not really responsible, you know, he tries to reach out and things like that. It almost seems that it's just easier to defend that. Um, And maybe some of that comes, maybe it comes from a good place, you know, people wanting to take the onus off God. But um, I wonder if that has kind of driven a little bit of this.
1: Yeah, I think in your approach to apologetics, those guys aren't presuppositional in the sense Mm -hmm. that, you know, we come, at least I come to the, to the, to the idea that, Humans are unregenerate and God haters and blinded by Satan and dead in sin. Mm -hmm. And you can give them information, but you have to go in understanding that that's their condition unless God does a sovereign work. And so, if you go in and appeal to the fleshly by, you know, appealing to libertarian free will, of course, among unregenerate, that's going to resonate more because that's their natural state of Mm -hmm. wanting to to be in control.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, One thing I, you know, as far as like the problem of evil. I remember when I was talking with the provisionist perspective guys, I think it was Eric Kemp, you know, I basically, and I think I even talked about this on our podcast uh, that we did with those guys, is no matter how you look at it, you can't get God off the hook. Mm -hmm. Because if something evil happens, and God knew it was going to happen, he could have, number one, stopped it from happening, and he didn't, so then why didn't he stop it? He must not be powerful. He must not be loving. So we know he's all-powerful and we know he's loving. So for him not to stop the evil, he had a purpose. Mm-hmm. And so it goes back to God having a purpose. You can't get God off the hook. Now, one of the things the provisionist perspective guys did to, to defend their views, they said, well, God didn't have any part. Do you, could, you, could you conceive, Sean, of God not having any part in it at all? That God was just hands off and didn't have any part in it? And I'm like, well, how can God not have any part in his creation? Because even if God has no part, you're basically saying he's a deistic God who doesn't care or doesn't have power, mm-hmm. as opposed to a God who has a purpose in all things he does. We just don't know what that purpose is. Yeah. It's
0: interesting. Well, I wanna maybe take a look. Let's try to flesh out some um ideas from Reformed theology so we can kinda get ahead. Because I kinda, sure. you know, I wanna I don't want people to Look at this and, you know, here's this talk. I want to go back to scripture since that's something we're sure. definitely big on. Sure. And something you, we mentioned in the dialogue that you asked, you said, well, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in mm-hmm. regeneration in terms of a dead man? So maybe let's let's walk down that. Let's look at the uh, reformed understanding of uh, sin. Like, what is the state of human beings before they're regenerated? Are all human beings sinful? Are we born dead? What are our capabilities there? Sure. Um, so what?
2: I'm
0: um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'll say maybe so um let's start with the word dead <laughs> so okay. i think uh i always feel that's uh interesting and we can go to pull text if you want um but so for instance in ephesians chapter two right we're we're dead in our sins and for the reformed person that the understanding of dead would be the literal understanding of dead right lazarus was dead couldn't respond totally flatlined no cognitive abilities and then god calls him from literal death to literal life um so I say that's usually the way we would understand the reform perspective. Um, so how would you explain being dead in sins to maybe a provisionist?
1: Yeah, I would say Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's not working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I would say that in that passage of scripture, Paul gives five descriptions of an unregenerate person. And he starts out with a condition being dead, and he ends with a nature of being under wrath. So it's kind of like a sandwich or a bookend. He Mm -hmm. starts with a condition of deadness, he ends with by nature children of wrath, and then he fleshes out three different activities that a person does as a result of that condition to kind of give this composite picture. But when you say dead, it doesn't mean sick. It doesn't mean weak. The word, the Greek word, there, necros means dead. But Paul defines it. He says, "In the trespasses," that word really means in rebellion. So one thing that provisionists need to understand is that when we say, like they like to use the term, like you know, you you Calvinists believe you're corpse, like dead, and you can't respond or can't do anything. That's partially true. We're dead, but actively dead in rebellion. It doesn't mean that we're we're neutral or we're dead and we, we don't do anything. Actually, the deadness means that we're dead in that rebellion. We walk in that rebellion. We can do nothing but be in rebellion. So we're dead walking in rebellion, and in no way can we positively respond in and of ourselves to the gospel appeal to anything because our nature is that of deadness, and our nature is that of following the course of this world. Our nature is that of following Satan. Our nature is that of being enslaved to the flesh. And then Paul says there, we were by nature children of wrath. Now, nature, I think the only other place he uses that is in Galatians chapter 2, where he said we were Jews by birth. It's the same word there. So, really, what Paul's saying is, by birth, we're children of wrath. Now, provisions would say, yeah, we're children of wrath because we personally choose to sin and we get what we deserve because we chose to sin. But Paul doesn't say merely that we're children of wrath, he adds that we're by nature children of wrath to show that that's that's something we're born with. So we're born dead, we're born in rebellion, we're born unable to please God, we're born children of wrath. That renders us not just totally depraved, but totally unable to do anything positively to believe, to repent, to do anything because of that deadness. Now, that's a long answer, but hopefully that explains that, that text a little bit clearer.
0: No, that's good. Yeah, I'm glad to need to flesh it out. So we are totally dead in our trespasses of sin, according to Ephesians. And then um, our sin nature, I believe it's Romans chapter 5, where Paul makes the connection with Adam. Obviously, we were all yeah. you know born with the, the sin in Adam, the curse of Adam. So if we're all dead, then how are we taken from death and eternal state where we can't respond at all? to being regenerated? What is the the leap
2: from death to life there?
1: Well, if we continue in, in Ephesians chapter two, um, verse four and five, but God, okay, strong, strong adversity there, but God, I've, Paul's like spent three verses saying how unregenerately dead we are, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And here's the key, even when we were dead in our trespasses, so he repeats that just so we get it, So when Paul repeats something twice in a passage, it's for emphasis, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So God has to be the one to make us alive. We don't make ourselves alive. We don't choose to make ourselves alive. We don't say you know, Lord, make me alive, and and kind of God gives us the option whether we want to, it's God unilaterally makes us alive. And then Paul defines that, by grace you've been saved. So let's ask Paul, Paul, what is grace? Well, Paul would say, grace is God making you alive. Why do you need to be made alive? Because you're spiritually dead. So there has to be something that God alone does to make us alive. Ezekiel 36 talks about God taking out a heart of stone and replacing us with the heart of flesh, God unilaterally doing that. Acts 16, Lydia, the Lord opened her heart. She didn't open her heart, the Lord opened her heart. Uh, So we have all these metaphors being made alive, replacing with the heart of stone, with the heart of flesh, God opening um, hearts, God opening blind eyes, Uh, John 3, uh, God causing us to be born again, where the Holy Spirit blows where he wishes. And so um, it's not something we choose to do. It's something that God alone does. and has to do because we're dead.
0: So when um, I've used that, you know, the same line of reasoning before and walking people through scripture, and then one of the next objections that I usually hear from, you know, uh, any buck provisionist Arminian is well, that seems, you know, not fair that God would arbitrarily choose a couple people, you know, to be saved and then just kind of, you know, throw out all the rest, you know, and there's, that, that word "arbitrary" is used quite often. You know, like God's—he's just randomly picking a bunch of people, and then he leaves a bunch of people out. Uh, what is typically your response to when somebody <laughs> uses that
1: argument? Yeah, yeah. So here's the argument: God arbitrarily chooses a select few. Yeah. Okay. Let, let's let's just debunk that whole thing. Number one, whoever said it's a select few? Mm-hmm. Uh, Revelation says it's a number no man can count. Um, it, it's a great number. So. No Calvinist I know believes it's a select few. It's a number no man can count. Number two, arbitrary means that God just does it willy-nilly and he has no purpose. Now, let's go back real quick. Let's, let's go back to Ephesians. Let me just pull this up here. Go to Ephesians 1, Okay. We've got three words there that Paul uses to talk about being predestined. In him we have obtained inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. So three words there, Paul compounds and says, this is according to God's purpose, the good pleasure of God. So here's the point. God never does anything without a purpose. We may think that it's arbitrary because from our perspective, God just picks and chooses. That's what the provisions would say. But God does everything with a sovereign purpose according to the counsel of his will. Now, he's not obligated to tell us what that counsel is. He's not obligated to tell us why he does what he does, but he does it with a purpose. And so to say it's arbitrary means that there's no purpose behind it. Mm-hmm. We, there is a purpose behind it. And God has a purpose. He just made, He's not under obligation to tell us what that purpose is. Um, so it's his counsel. It's his will. It's his purpose. It's his good pleasure. Um, it's not willy-nilly. It's not arbitrary. It's not random. He's doing it for his purpose. And we can say that's unfair or unjust, but then I would just respond the way Paul does in Romans 9. Who are you, a man, to talk back to God? Um, God? God has a right to do with his creation what he wants to do with his creation.
0: And that's where I was. I think I was going to go next in our our questions before we ran out of time. Was I was going to Romans nine, um, and in my you know the that I would have been in Romans nine verse seventeen, uh, which says, "For the scripture says the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth." It has mercy on whoever he wills and hardens whoever he wills. So my response to that is always, you know, typically based in Romans nine that it's for God's glory. God does what he wants because he's God. He knows all. He knows better, and for us to question. You know his choices. Um, that's kind of where I get that idea of that you know bottom up versus top down that I've used before, where you know uh, provisionism and you know open theism and holiness they all fall, it's very man centered, where you start with man being the you know our destiny is in our hands and we make the ultimate final decision. And then, whereas you know the Calvinists would say, no, it's top down, God is the one in charge, he does what he wants, and since it's all done, you know, to the counsel of his will and for his glory. There's no injustice there, just because we may not understand his his counsel and why he does things, doesn't mean that we, you know, have the right to question an Almighty God or one person out of seven billion in the 21st century. You know, and there's been billions before us who God has has interacted with, and his his will has been carried out through that. And so that's it's it's I don't know, I don't like to accuse people, but it seems almost like a bit of, of arrogance to assume that man has such a an effect on God. <laughs> right from our position
1: right one of the things i've seen with provisionists is they tend to elevate the love of god as the ultimate or penultimate attribute and put everything else below it Mm -hmm. and you can't pit one attribute of god against another and so they may not consciously do that but they would say you know god is love and that's his ultimate attribute so therefore you know for him to be have a purpose or him to to choose or him to harden that that can't that has to be subservient to his to his um to his love another thing um that I've also seen with um the provisionists is that they often um talk about god granting god sovereignly granting people free will so they want to protect like if you read like herschel hobbes and and I can tell you a whole i mean i can tell you provisionisms comes directly from Herschel Hobbes. I don't know if you're familiar with who Herschel Hobbes is and where, what his role is in Southern Baptist life and where they everything can be traced back to him.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but if you read his, especially his work on Ephesians, his work on um, election, it's basically God is sovereign and he sovereignly chooses to give man free will. And so it's up to them. God draws, but men have the final choice. Mm-hmm. You know, God votes for you. Satan votes against you. And you have the deciding <laughs> vote. That's kind of their theology. So they want to protect God's sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And they'd redefine sovereignty as, you know, God's, God's the ruler. He's the mm-hmm. ruler. He has the right to rule. Whereas we would say, no, sovereignty means God meticulously ordains and chooses and predestines and has a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, so...
0: So were they, maybe the... We, what we would call their version of free will, um, I usually call it as autonomous free will
2: mm-hmm.
0: versus what we would say free will. Our free will is open as long as, you know, it doesn't, uh, not as long as if I would say, it. God is sovereign. And we have free will, but we're not autonomous to make, you know, decisions, free will in and of itself, outside of God's purpose and sovereign rule over time and history.
1: Right. And I would say the reform view of the will is that we choose based upon our nature and desires. Mm-hmm as an unregenerate person who's dead in sin, you're always going to choose based upon that nature. And you're never going to choose Christ because your nature, you can't rise above that nature to choose for Christ because your nature is enslaved. And until God changes your nature and makes you willing, then you will choose Christ. But it has to be because God has overcome that and you have a new nature.
0: Keep it in line with a free will. Have you ever uh, dialogue with provisionists or anybody uh, on that? Kind of on that from provision and open theism, I'm kind of speaking in that. Have you spoken with them or dialogued with them in terms of something like prophecy? Because it seems from the open theist or the Molinist or even maybe some provisionist, how they would understand prophecy seems troublesome because if God isn't in control of time and isn't sovereign over time, when we read prophecies from, you know, all the way from the book of Genesis up until the intertestamental period, how would they understand those prophecies to be? How would they be able to become come to fruition? Because if you're an open theist or you believe that God isn't 100 percent in control of the future, then some of those prophecies, it seems, would fall short or would be false because he would just miss a few. Have you encountered people in that kind of talking Um, in that vein?
1: Yeah, I haven't I haven't interacted with as many open theists as I've Mm -hmm. had provisionists, but but that is a big hole in their idea of prophecy. I mean, how do you reconcile the scripture? I mean, think about all of the think about this think of all the quote-unquote free will actions that happened to bring about the birth of Christ at the right time that he was born Mm -hmm. through kings and births and this and that that Mary and Joseph got together and that it was Beth. I mean, all these supposedly free, millions of free will actions, Mm -hmm. but all ordained by God bring about jesus being born at just the right time by the virgin in bethlehem to fulfill all those prophecies Mm -hmm. um i think that i think what a scholar say there's like over like 700 prophecies or 900 or something in the old testament alone Mm -hmm. pointing to christ i mean how do you how do you reconcile those yeah i'm not
0: sure and there's over 100 like specific born in bethlehem and then i think of you know psalm 22 and isaiah 53 and you have these these very descriptive Old Testament passages seem to almost, you know, describe crucifixion, you know, very clearly and distinctly before crucifixion even existed, and you know, Isaiah fifty-three and the suffering servant, and it just it, it seems, if you take any position other than God as sovereign, completely sovereign over future events, then you're, almost by default, kind of fall into an open theistic framework.
2: real, real well, perfect terminology. Yeah.
1: And, and that leads to kind of a liberal understanding of scripture. Mm-hmm. I mean, you kind of get into the whole Deuterode Isaiah, like, you know, some people believe there's three authors of Isaiah and that the mm-hmm. third part of Isaiah had to be written post-exile because how can you predict these things to happen if, you know, so I, I think, you know, you kind of deal with some inerrancy issues there as well too.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So one, one thing that
0: would, they asked us, um, is they asked us how this was something I think Warren was big on and he, he seemed confused on our answer. I'm not sure why, but he asked us, how do you know that yeah. you're not self, you're not self-deceived or how do you know you're one of the elect? You know, how do you know right. that you're just going through life thinking you're one of the elect? And I was in the back of my head. And this was something else I was going to bring up. I was thinking, well, how does a provisionist know the same thing? And then how do you know if you're a provisionist, how do you know you're not going to lose your salvation before you die? You know, almost like a, right. you can occur right. a, yeah, a mortal sin, you know, very Roman Catholic, right. you know, how do you know you can't lose it? So I guess, how do we know, how do we, you know, maybe just relook at that again or reiterate how we yeah.
2: know.
1: Yeah, that was a weird question, and I wanted to ask it back to him because mm-hmm. I think you're right. How, I mean, put it back on them. How do you know that you're saved and that you're going to stay saved and that you're not going to lose it? And they may answer, well, I don't know. I, I could, you know, I chose to get, I could choose to get out. Um I guess as a Calvinist, I don't walk around wondering if I'm saved because I believe what the scriptures say about those who repent and believe. Now, there are texts that say make your calling and election sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, nowhere in the Bible are we ever told to make sure that we're one of the elect. Mm -hmm. The Bible commands us to repent and believe. If I've repented and believed and am trusting in Christ, the Bible is true that says that I have passed from life to death, I've been justified, I've been accepted and forgiven, I've been adopted. And therefore based upon that objective truth, I know I'm saved because of what God has done. Even if I don't feel like I'm saved or even if I have questions, it, it's not me that got me saved in the first place. It's God alone. And um he kind of brought up Calvin's view of evanescent faith. I don't know if you're familiar with that where you can kind of have somewhat like sort of saving faith, but not really saving faith and think you're saved. And then, you know, later on not be saved. I think he was trying to get us to go down that rabbit trail. I think it's just a little bit easier that believe what the Bible says about you. If you've, if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, you pass from life to death. God has done the work, rest in what he's done for you.
0: Well, And then, once again, if you just look at scripture, it seems like Paul, for some reason, he knew these kind of objections were going to come up, you know, Romans 8. You know, the golden chain, Romans 9, talks about, you know, Paul defends God and says he chooses whom he wills. Romans 10, 9, confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. So it's, like you said, Scripture doesn't, you know, focus a lot on, like, should we worry about salvation? You know, what about your assurance? It's like confess your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. You will be saved. And uh, obviously we see Scripture giving us, you know, passages Paul warning us that you will see people departing or falling away. Or even in John chapter six, where some of the disciples leave. So there may be people that, you know, for a short time claim that they're saved, but it's time reveals all, you know, those people we've all, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you see people like that falling away. Sure.
1: You know, they I, may, mean, I mean, Jesus even warns us in the parable of the soils. I mean, the second and the you know, kind of the, the second and third soil are examples of that. Those who have joy and believe for a while, but when the trials of life come, because they had no root they fall away. And Mm -hmm. I take that to mean they had no true regeneration. They kind of faked it for a while. Mm -hmm. I often say this in my preaching, you can have a profession of faith but not be in possession of Christ. Mm -hmm. You can profess faith in Christ but not actually possess Christ by faith. So you can, you know, there's a lot of people that may say they're Christians but not truly be regenerate. Uh, But, I mean, It's interesting, too, like if you believe in what Romans chapter 4 and 5 teach about imputed righteousness through justification, if you've trusted Christ by faith, then Christ has credited his righteousness to you, and you stand in a permanent position of being at peace with God and accepted and have access to the throne of grace. And that's the basis of our assurance is our justification um and so that that was kind of an interesting question i guess the question for them would be how, like like you said how do you know you're saved and how you know you're going to stay saved
2: mm-hmm. yeah I, I
0: felt much more uh a lot more unbiblical and now i understand why uh heretical statements from mr <laughs> warren uh, after yeah. the fact as i started watching his videos and uh, described himself as an open theist or a neo molinist and um, he's, he's done some – a lot of videos trying to defend that, and then he does he a lot was, of – Didn't
1: think, he say he was pre-Augustinian or something? Uh, he he might have. I'm not – he
0: – in some of his videos, he makes a big deal about Reformed people being Augustinians. <laughs> so yeah. I, I don't know if in his mind we just – we started in Augustine, and then Calvinists or Reformed people didn't re-emerge until the 16th century when when Calvin showed up. Uh, I don't know. It's It's very – it's interesting and i don't the reason i asked you in the beginning about uh latent flowers because he has done some things with latent flowers and the other uh gentleman uh, mr kevlar the one who couldn't make it because he ended up in the hospital yeah unfortunately um he has also done a lot of stuff with latent flowers so that's that's why i was making the connection asking does he a open theist does he you know does he give these people ammo in a sense to to fuel their theological think, heresies
1: <laughs> yeah i think you get yeah i mean I used to engage in a lot of Facebook groups um, that were, you know, Soteriology 101 type groups, and I just got so worn out with, it's like, why do all the heresy people end up in one place? It's like, I mean, I'll just say this. um, I've seen in such an attempt to combat reform theology, some of these guys have just become heretical on basic things, that should not be a problem, even if you're not a Calvinist. Mm-hmm. They've gone so far the other way that they've almost become he- like, you know, heretical in their beliefs, mm-hmm. and and that's very very concerning.
0: And it is. And it's interesting that you said that. It seems that that kind of heretical or that that theological wavering doesn't exist so much in the the Reformed camp, because if it does, then usually the Reformed camp, in speak in general, rejects it or rejects right. that person, or rejects that group, uh, yeah. because our emphasis is always on Scripture. Right. You know, and if you can't show from Scripture, if it's not explicitly taught, or at least implicitly taught, uh, right. then there's there's no room for you when you don't stay Reformed, you don't stay Calvinistic.
1: Right. Well, one thing that we have going for us, and again, Scripture alone is our authority, but we have confessions that serve as guardrails, whereas the provisionists don't really have a confession they, they. I mean, these guys don't have a confession that's been articulated over the centuries by a group of people that were strong in the scriptures, not that the confessions are inerrant or they're, you know, they're infallible, but they do serve as guardrails to prevent that. And I think we in the reform camp, you know, we, we're strong, we believe strongly in inerrancy, the authority of scripture, we're strong in exegetical, but we also understand the importance of a confession to keep those guardrails up so that we don't fall into errors.
0: Well, me. Kind of shift to still kind of in the same vein, but maybe shift just a little bit. So we mentioned scripture uh, and the idea, salt scripture kind of being the the fundamental, one of the fundamental foundations that we plant our faith in. Um, let's 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 talk about that because I also see that because I've most of my videos haven't been about Calvinism, or Reformed theology. I've done a lot of interacting with Roman Catholics and the occult and just a variety of things. But one issue. Um, That comes up with Roman Catholics quite often, it's the same thing that I would say is an issue with the provisionist is is the idea of sola scriptura, the Bible being the foundation, the only source from which we gain our theological and doctrinal beliefs. Um, so how would you defend or present sola scriptura to anybody who would fall into a Roman Catholic camp or an open theism camp or somebody who wouldn't agree that it is should be our sole infallible source for faith and doctrine? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean I would I would First of all, take them to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, um, and let the Scripture speak for itself. Let me just pull it up here. Um, We'll even go back to verse um, 14, Paul's writing to Timothy. But as for you, continue what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Graphae is the Greek word there, the sacred writings, referring back to the Old Testament. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Um Verse 16 is very, very important. Pass, all scripture, graphe, all the written scripture is theanustas. That is God breathed. It's it's it is God's very direct word breathed out in the hearts and minds of human authors to write down exactly specifically what God wanted down to the very last jot and tittle with no error coming directly from God. Now, Second Peter tells us the process that no prophecy of Scripture comes about by someone's own interpretation, but they... Were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We don't have a lot of information about how God did that, but we do know that the final product, the written scriptures, all of the written scriptures, are the very breath of God. And if they're the very breath of God, then they are without error because God does not err or God does not lie. And then they're profitable. Uh, they're sufficient is the word there. They're sufficient for teaching, for training, for every, everything that we need the Bible is sufficient. It's the sole source of our doctrine, our practice. Um, and so I would just say that the Scripture alone is our only source of authority because it's God-breathed. Um, no other writing, no other institution, no other person is Theanostas, has the, the stamp of being God-breathed, except for, for the written Scriptures
0: we've got our couple more minutes here. Um, let me just finish up. Obviously, this is more focused on provisionism, but that's obviously sure. the authority of Scripture uh, plays sure. a big part in that. Uh, if you had one, if, if you had just one, because there's only, you know, we can make it simple. If there was only one issue with provisionism, uh, or let's say, if the, what's the main issue that you find with provisionism? Is it a lack of understanding of Scripture? Is it they don't understand sovereignty? Is it not understanding words what what would you say is the main issue that you find within the provisionist camp
1: Provisionism stands or falls on three main pillars okay so number 1 they deny total inability so everything goes from that and so a denial of total inability means that they believe in libertarian autonomous free will number 2 they deny individual unconditional election and hold to corporate, usually like a corporate election, which is, again, more free will. And number three, they adamantly deny any type of compatibilism or divine determinism. And so those are the three pillars they're going to really harp on, especially the total inability. Um, And I've heard Leighton Flowers even say that, that total inability is where he harps on because you know, if he, can, if he can convince you that that is not true, then everything else can fall into place because then it comes back to libertarian free will and that humans have the ability to respond to the gospel appeal when presented because the gospel appeal is sufficient in and of itself to enable a response. There's no need for the Holy Spirit to do an internal work of grace to overcome spiritual deadness. You don't, You aren't spiritually dead. You're born with the ability to respond. So when the gospel comes, you can choose to respond. You can choose not to respond.
0: Well, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me, Pastor. I know with any debate or any dialogue, there's never enough time. Obviously, there's always uh, (laughs) leftover questions and leftover dialogue that that need to be answered. And uh, hopefully this has answered some of it for both our uh, Calvinist and Provisionist friends. Um, And if uh, any of the other gentlemen who are there um, would like to respond in the future, maybe we'll have another video. (laughs) Well, well, Ben, thanks
1: for... Yeah, Ben, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate what you do. I appreciate your work. Um, you're you're an intelligent, articulate young man, and I, I wish the, the Lord's blessing upon you and pray that your ministry is fruitful and that uh, what we've done here blesses God's people. Well, I thank you, Pastor. I appreciate it.